We got work to do. Open up to Romans 16. Two more weeks in Romans, and we've seen Paul already give a lot of greetings. So you'd think he'd be done, but it's the Apostle Paul. He's got to get in a little more teaching, and then some more greetings, and then we'll begin to wind down. So open up with me to Romans chapter 16. And what we're going to see this morning is a final warning, and then an assurance, and then the final, final greetings, the for real greetings. So let's look together at first a warning in verse 17. He's winding down. These last words are important. He wants to close strong. What, is he, what does he say to this church? Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Avoid them. What does he tell? He tells the church, watch out, be on guard. And he tells them to watch out specifically for two types of people, those who create division and those who create obstacles to sound teaching, to healthy teaching, to right teaching. Watch out for these types of people. So first he says, divisive people. You see, God cares deeply about the unity of his church. This is one of the main reasons why we have so many warnings to watch out for divisive people. So the enemy loves to divide the people of God. And he will use anyone and anything to try to get us divided. Clearly, he'll use a pandemic. He'll even use masks, apparently. He'll use other Christians, whatever it may be. And so we've got to be on guard as a church against division. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verse 10. It says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Aren't those such strong words? We in the church will give way too much grace to divisive people. When God says, warn them once, warn them twice, have nothing else to do with them. We can be way too tolerant of divisive people and churches suffer as a result. So he says, watch out. Watch out for people who want to cause division. And then he says, watch out for those who want to create obstacles to sound teaching, right teaching, healthy doctrine. And again, this isn't very popular to talk about, but God cares about it, so we are. In fact, you know, there are 27 books in the New Testament. In 25 of those books, God says, watch out for false teaching. He addresses and warns people about wrong teaching. It's why he's given us this book. He cares about the truth, wants us to be on guard. And here's the thing about false teachers. I mean, think about, think about in your mind, what does a typical false teacher look like? What comes to mind? I would love to know what is on your mind right now. But we tend to think it's like this really clearly shysty person. Maybe he has fangs or horns, very clearly visible. But listen, friends, that's not how false teaching works. No one would follow them, right? They're actually, they claim, they claim to be Christians. They have Bible verses. They're usually very kind people, very sweet people, very likable people. That's why the Bible says they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Let me read to you from the book of Acts chapter 20. This is where Paul's saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus. What does he tell them as he's leaving? Pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. He says, pay careful attention. They're going to come in among you and they're going to speak twisted things to try to draw the disciples away. Listen to Peter in 2 Peter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. He's saying, you know, if they happen to come along or maybe they'll come along, no. He says, there will be false prophets among you. It's a guarantee. And he says, many will follow, many, because the way is broad, Jesus tells us, that leads to destruction. But narrow is the way that leads to life. So, friends, be on guard. And for most Christians in America, it's not the outright heresy that we're going to be duped by. It's usually the more subtle wrong teaching that we will get duped by. Now, don't get me wrong. That's out there. Absolutely, it's out there. Always has been, always will be. Those who will deny core doctrines of the faith, the deity of Christ, or the reality of judgment, or the exclusivity of Jesus, it's out there. In fact, it's right down the road. I often take sales to come to work, and uh, many of you have seen the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship there, and they usually advertise what they're going to be talking about on the weekend. It's always funny. Here's just a few of the things they've covered over the years. Uh, Alexander the Great... Why We Sleep, Global Warming, Piano Music, Asset Allocation and Investing, Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix Part 2, Car Talk. But most of us aren't going to be duped by universalism or Unitarianism, that is denying the Trinity or denying there's a heaven or hell. Most of us aren't going to go there. Most Bible-believing Christians won't even be tempted by that. For us, though, it's the more subtle stuff. It's the stuff that elevates people over God. It's the stuff that goes along with the winds of culture rather than the truth of God's word. It's man-centered teaching. It's the stuff that's squishy and, and vague and superficial. It's usually the stuff that ends up on bestseller lists. I mean, good grief, girl, wash your face. It's a gospel of self-esteem. In fact, I don't want to take too much time here, but just, I just recently saw this woman who's a best-selling Christian author divorced her husband and here's what bugged me about this they've had these seminars on marriage and cost they would charge an extreme amount of money to come to these marriage seminars to, to learn from what the bible says about marriage her husband told us on told social media that their marriage had been on the brink for years but here they are getting rich with a hypocritical lifestyle or jen hatmaker another one that a lot of people love because she's a great communicator she has smooth talk as we'll see just a week and a half ago she's celebrating and affirming her homosexual daughter's lifestyle so peter says this stuff is destructive celebrating what god says sends people to hell or the shack, or I could go on name and I don't want to get in too much trouble. But it's not the outright heresy. It's the stuff that looks and feels Christian. They say some, they say some right things. But it's just trendy and it's watered down. And too many teachers just want to be accepted by the world. They want to be praised by people. The Bible says they like to tickle ears. And so today, that's usually going to be whatever's the hot button issue. Wherever, wherever the, the Bible has the sharpest edge in culture, that's where false teachers will 
shave it down and soften it. And today, sadly, that's going to be mostly issues surrounding sexuality and homosexuality and gender and gender roles. And as we're on guard, here's the warning, be on guard. And as we as a church are on guard for false teaching, we need to be attuned not only to what is said, but to what is not said. Is there mention of such biblical categories of sin or wrath or repentance or blood or atonement or judgments? Because this stuff's all over the Bible. And when it's not, when we hear teaching that's contrary to Scripture, what should our posture be? What does he say here? Tolerate them, love them, accept. No, avoid them. That's what he says. Avoidance is the posture. Stay away from them. Don't waste your time on them. Life is too short. And some of you discerning people who've been here for a while, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said in Romans 14, wasn't that all like, hey, just accept one another, don't divide. What's going on here? Remember what those chapters are about. Romans 14 and 15 are about disputable matters and secondary opinions of practice, not primary doctrine. So yes, when it comes to disputable matters and gray areas, absolutely accept one another within the church. But when it comes to truth, it's worth fighting for. So Paul's not contradicting himself. He's saying, be on guard, watch out. In fact, he even calls them names in places in the Bible. In Philippians chapter 3, he's warning the church about false teachers. And he says, look out, similar language, look out for the dogs. And we love dogs. I've got two dogs. They didn't then. They were more kind of like, you know, rodents in the first century. It's only now that we domesticate them. So it's not a compliment like, hey, look out for those dogs. No, look out for the dogs. Then he says, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul, yes, accept Christians who have different opinions on disputable matters. When it comes to truth, though, don't put up with it. Avoid them. Correct them. Galatians is a chapter where they had received the gospel by faith alone. They believed in Jesus. These false teachers come along and say, that's not enough. You need to add a work to the gospel. Yeah, you believed. You're on a good start. You really want to be saved? Add a work. And the specific work was circumcision. Again, kids, if you don't know what that means, ask your dad. He'll tell you all about it later. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 5.12. Those who unsettle you, basically wanting to add that to the gospel, I wish they'd go ahead and cut the whole thing off. I didn't say that. Paul said that. Emasculate them because the truth matters. Why? Because eternity matters. Eternity is at stake. So we as a church must be on guard. Look at verse 18. Why? For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. He's saying, he judges their motives. They don't even actually care about God. They may sound that way. They really only care about themselves, their own appetites. As Philippians 3 puts it, their God is their belly. It's not about food. The idea is that they're addicted to themselves. They're enslaved to their own egotism. They're not in it for the Lord or for the church. They're in it for their own name or their own power or their own pocketbook. And he says they deceive the naive and they deceive unsuspecting people with their skilled communication. They use smooth talk. They use flattery. They're really compelling people typically. He says, don't be naive. Look beyond the flash and discern the content. What is being said? Is the truth being taught? 
Look at verse 19. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So they're doing great. The church, their obedience is known. People have heard about them. But what he's saying is continue in that. Just don't have a blind obedience, church. Have a discerning obedience. No naivete. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. Jesus tells us to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So first thing, watch out, church. Watch out. Be on guard. The days are evil. Second thing, though, he gives us an assurance here in this passage. Look at verse 20 of Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So he mentions Satan. Satan is real. Seems like we forget that too often. We don't take the spiritual war that we're in seriously. But friends, the Christian life is war. Now, it's not war with people. We're not battling people. In fact, Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, one another, humans. It's a spiritual battle. The real enemy is not a human. He's Satan. He's the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4 says. He's our enemy, and so the Christian life is war. Do you think about the Christian life that way? War? I wish you would. I want to introduce you. I want to spend a little time here. I want to introduce you to this biblical concept called the antithesis. The biblical antithesis. Well, what does that word mean? It means opposition between two things. A thing that is the direct opposite. And I think this is underappreciated today. And we need to, we need to think more in terms of this way. God's word teaches that there is an antithesis between the people of God and the people of Satan. We tend today, we want to downplay differences in distinction where the Bible raises the wall and it teaches it from beginning to end. I want you to see this. Flip over to the first couple pages of the Bible, Genesis 3.15. I want, to, I want you to see from Scripture this biblical antithesis this morning. Satan and his people and God and his people. Genesis 3, you remember the context, Adam and Eve had eaten. They had followed their own will and the will of the serpent rather than God's. And so God puts a curse on the serpent. And that's what we're going to read in verse 15. Genesis 3. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there it is, right from the beginning, enmity between the offspring of the serpents and the offspring of the woman. And it begins right off the bat. You know your Bibles? What happens in Genesis 4? The offspring of the serpent, Cain, murders the offspring of the woman, Abel. And it's not just me making that up. Here's what 1 John 3 says about Cain. 1 John 3, 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The serpent hates the offspring of the woman, of humanity. Because before the coming of Christ, with every baby born, the enemy doesn't know. He's not all-knowing. The serpent thinks that might be the offspring of the woman that's going to crush my head. And so you see this picture of the enemy trying to do everything to eliminate 
the offspring of the woman, starting in Genesis chapter 3. And it goes forward. Then you have the sons of Cain in the Bible, the sons of Seth. Then you have Isaac. Then you have Ishmael. Then you have Jacob and Esau. You have Israel. You have Egypt. Listen to Exodus 1 with this Israel and Egypt. Then the king of Egypt, that's the offspring of the serpent, said to the Hebrew midwives, that's the offspring of the woman, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. There you go, trying to eliminate the offspring of the woman. Then you have Israel and the Canaanites. Then you have Israel and the nations. Then you have this, the righteous and the wicked. Think about Psalm 1. The righteous man is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked. Sit in the seat of scoffers. Stand in the way of sinners. Then you have the, the foolish and the wise all throughout the book of Proverbs, this biblical antithesis. Then moving to the New Testament, you have Herod, the son of the serpent, versus Jesus, the son of God. Listen to Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained. Offspring of the serpent trying to eliminate the offspring of the woman. You have Jesus in John 8 speaking to the, the Pharisees. You are the sons of your father, the devil, and these are my disciples. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. You have the disciples and you have the brood of vipers. Romans 9, you have the elect and the non-elect. You have believers, unbelievers, those who walk in the light, those who love the darkness. You have the church and you have the world and we're called to be enemies with the world or we become enemies of God. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. 2 Corinthians 6, what partnership is righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship is light and darkness? Are you getting the picture? I need you to see this from the Bible. Remember Romans chapter 1? Romans 1, go ahead and flip there. It's been too long. Romans 1 teaches that all people know God. All people know God. And there's two responses. We can either submit to him through faith and repentance or we will suppress him. That's what Romans 1 says. Look at Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols. No one is neutral. I mean, we got to get this, church. No one in this world is neutral. There's no neutrality. 
People are either submitting to God or suppressing God. It's what the Bible teaches. Every square inch of our creation is claimed by the Lord Jesus Christ and counterclaimed by the father of lies. This is part of what it means to be on guard, to be rigorous. The question is not which God, who has a God. The question is which God. The question is not, is there going to be an allegiance? The question is, who are we giving allegiance to? Jesus said, whoever's not with me is against me. And there are biblical absolutes about all things. Did God create or did we evolve from primordial soup? Did Jesus rise from the dead or was he just a failed Jewish teacher? Are we made in the image of God or are we not? Is there a difference between men and women? Is marriage between a man and a woman or a man and a man and a woman and a woman? Is Christ Lord of all or is he not? There are those the Bible describes as dead in sin and hostile to God. And that was all of us. And there are those who have had their hearts softened, born again, and now love him and submit to his truth. An antithesis. Starting in Genesis 3.15, it goes all the way to the end of the Bible. Let me read from Revelation 12. Revelation 12 is filled with symbols. But the idea here is that the people of God, the Jewish people, are going to give birth to the Messiah. And you'll, you'll get the picture. Romans 12, 2, she, the people of God, was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The offspring of the woman versus the offspring of the serpent. We're at war. It's always been that way. Constant, total war. And the offspring of the serpent, our enemy, Satan here is, verse 20, names him, is hostile towards every offspring of the woman. Why? Because there's potential that that offspring would grow and become an heir of the kingdom of Christ. Friends, this is why our culture hates children. This is the root right here. Genesis 3.15 why our culture loathes children. Now, praise God, it's not this way in Abilene, but when we lived in Austin, we would take our whole crew out, you know, all seven of us, and uh, we would make trips to various places. Costco wasn't quite so bad because usually large families go to Costco and we're constantly getting stopped. It's usually encouraging most of the time. And you know what's interesting? It's usually older men and women that often share their regrets with us. It's really a sad thing. It happens frequently, usually because they focus on their job or something more than their children, and now it's too late. Um, but, but often we'll get these dirty looks, especially in Austin. Again, he's just, just offended that we would have five kids. Like, why would you use, waste the earth resources like that? You know? And I get fiery. I, I get fiery in those. I get ungodly, I'll confess, in those scenarios. It irritates me bad, and I just want to come back smart. Uh, and sometimes I don't. <laughs> but, the, and then there's the, the, the famous question, good grief, how many times have we heard it? You know what causes that, don't you? <laughs> and if I'm, behaving, if I'm behaving, I'll just try to embarrass Alicia instead of come back at them and say, of course we do. Of course. We enjoy it. Song of Solomon's in the Bible. <laughs> they never know Song of Solomon. But seriously, <laughs> seriously, our culture hates children. And this is why, friends, 
This is the root. Genesis 3.15, where it all begins. This is the root of abortion. This is why in America since 73, we have aborted 50 million babies. A lot of other factors there of why women do that and why men encourage that. At root, it's because of Satan. You know, Texas only has 29 million people. 50 million. Incredible. This is the root for child abandonment. This is the root for the rise of transgenderism and homosexuality. It's all related, negating the very possibility of childbearing. We're in a spiritual battle. Satan is real. And Satan loves to use false teaching. That's why it's in this context. It's what he does. Everywhere in the Bible, false teaching is led by the father of lies. In 2 Timothy, we're told to correct our opponents with gentleness and humility, but to correct false teaching. And then the end of that verse says this, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. Notice this, how he describes people who have followed faulty teaching. Escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But notice, this verse is an encouraging verse. I wanted us to feel the war But notice what he says in verse 20. We sing that great Reformation hymn. And lo, his doom is sure. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. The good news is the offspring of the woman has come. Just think about the storyline of Scripture. Remember, this started in Genesis 3.15. Sin enters the world and God tells the serpent... There will come a day, there will become an offspring of the woman who will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, he will crush your head. And so from that moment on, the question before the Old Testament is, when will this offspring come? We would think, I think Adam and Eve thought, it was Cain. First child. The prayer that Eve gives makes it sound like that. Wasn't Cain, was it? No, wasn't Cain. Rebellion, wickedness continues to rise, moving down the story. Then you have Noah and the flood. So now we know that the offspring who's going to defeat evil, this offspring of the woman ultimately is going to come from Noah's line. And then Noah's family grows and you have Abram called out. And God promises Abram a large family, tons of offspring. Going to give him a great name. And through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. So not only will this offspring crush evil, he's going to bless the Gentiles. And then Abraham's family grows into a nation, just like God promised, the nation of Israel. So now we know that this offspring of the woman is going to be a Jewish descendant, Jewish king, because God had told Abraham kings would come from you. So we're, we're waiting on this royal offspring of Abraham, Jewish man who would bring blessing to all people, not just the Jewish people. And then you have the king coming out of the people. David has promised that he would have a son, offspring, who would have rule that would be universal, not just the Jewish strip there but sea to sea not just Jews but Gentiles and that reign would be eternal we're waiting on the forever king so we're waiting on this offspring of the woman who will defeat evil who comes through Noah through Abraham will bless all Gentiles and we know he'll be Jewish and from David we know he'll be a king he'll rule forever and that's why the Bible starts with Matthew 1 1 Jesus son of David son of Abraham Jesus is the offspring of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. He's already been defeated. But his defeat is not yet total. The head of the serpent is crushed, but the heel of the son is bruised. 
But through the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus has already won the victory in principle. It's like D-Day and V-Day. It's a done deal. Colossians 2 says Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them by the cross. The victory's over in principle. The enemy's defeated, but that enemy has not yet conceded defeat. And so he's angrier than ever. It's like a, it's like a wounded animal. It's dangerous. He's in panic mode. He's going to do everything he can to protect himself and his empire. So we're at war, but there is no doubt about the ultimate outcome of this war. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, church. We typically don't think about peace and crushing together, do we? <laughs> but we should in the economy of God. He will wipe out wickedness. He will cleanse the world of all sin. And it's only through the destruction of evil that true peace can be had. Hostility must be eradicated for peace to exist. If you're here and you don't know the Lord, whether you feel it or not, you are at enmity with your creator. But you can have peace today by trusting in Jesus Christ who reconciles us through the blood of his cross, turns us from enemies to friends if we would just trust him. The God of peace will crush Satan. But notice it says under our feet. Genesis 3 didn't say that. He's going to crush Satan under our feet. Well, what does that mean? Why is that? Well, we're the victors. Why? Because we're connected to Christ. We don't do anything. We ride on his coattails. The victory is ours because we're in Christ. Any old Baptists in here? Victory is mine. Flip over to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who's at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long? We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, or even the ruler, the prince of darkness, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church life is hard. The Christian life is war. And it's hard because we, we want to just unplug, check out, drift. We want to be lazy. We can't do that. God hasn't given us this option. It's not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. But here's the good news. Take heart. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. The victory is secure. The future, sure. Good will triumph over evil because we know the end of the story. God wins. Therefore, we win. So he warns us and then he assures us and then he has some 
for real greetings as he closes out. Look at chapter 16, verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cortus, greet you. So he names eight more people. Paul's posse just keeps on growing. Mentions Timothy. We know Timothy was his right-hand man in so many ways. Timothy was with him for eight years. His beloved and faithful child in the Lord. We learn a little bit about Jason in Acts 17. We don't have time to go over there, but basically Jason had helped out the disciples and the apostles and those, the coworkers. He had brought them in, he had protected them, and they were gone. Well, the Jewish leaders come in the book of Acts chapter 17 and they raid Jason, drag him out to the street looking for the disciples. They're not there. And then they take money from him. So he was a faithful brother, suffered for the sake of the gospel. Sosipater had tagged along with Paul on one of his journeys. He was a Berean. Maybe you remember what Acts says about the Bereans. They were more noble than other people because they would hear teaching and they would go to Scripture to see if these things were so. In other words, they were on guard. They were watching out. And then old Tertius says, hey, he picks up his pen. Can I tell him I said hi? Tertius actually wrote Romans, which, by the way, for you students is important because most, even New Testament scholars, most people in Christian universities actually teach that Paul didn't write half of what he says he wrote. You just need to know that. So most of them don't think Paul wrote Colossians or wrote Ephesians or wrote 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or Titus. And one of the main arguments they will use to say, well, Paul didn't actually write it, is, well, the vocabulary is different or the writing style is different. And there are differences between, say, Romans and, and Colossians. Well, Paul didn't write Romans. He told Tertius what to write. And Tertius says, hey, make sure you tell him I said, hey. Gaius, Erastus, Cordus, these were prominent Christians, in, uh, not prominent Christians necessarily, but prominent Corinthians in Corinth. Gaius was a man of hospitality. He used his space and his stuff for the benefit of the church. So as he's rounding out, he said so much in Romans. What is his final plea here to the church and therefore to us? He says, church, watch out. Be on guard for false teaching, which Satan loves to use. But as you're on guard and as you continue to be beat up and battled through this sin-scarred world, be assured God will definitively defeat our enemy soon. Let's be faithful till then. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Even though it is so countercultural, it is so politically incorrect. It makes us hard to be faithful to it. So I pray for us as a church, we would be strong, that we would not be blown about by every wind of doctrine, that we wouldn't care about the opinions of people, but we would care about you. And God, we confess laziness and apathy. We want to just take it easy. We want comfort. We confess that and ask for grace to turn from it, that we would be on guard, that we would be watching out, that we would realize that the Christian life is a life of war. And to not live as if the Christian life were war is actually to work for the enemy. May we believe that deep in our bones, think it in our deepest thoughts, and then live in light of it. And God, we're thankful as life is hard, many of us have suffered as we've thought even today. We're grateful to know that victory is 
assured for us because of Christ. May we believe it. May we live in light of it. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus, our King. Amen.